Coastal wetland systems are, uh, exist along a lot of the coasts uh, all over the world, and they're basically where the land comes down to meet the ocean. So we often call, um, at least in temperate ecosystems, we would, we would think of those as salt marshes, but they're also mangroves in more tropical regions. Um, and they, they are <clears throat> systems that are inundated by tides, either occasionally or in some cases uh, once or, or twice uh, pretty much every day. That's Nathaniel Weston. He's an associate professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at Villanova University. They're really beautiful ecosystems. They're, um, if you're there in the summer, there's a, a green you know, grasses uh, that are waving in, in the wind, and you have the, the estuaries that are, that are flooding and draining on each uh, tidal cycle. And you see herons, blue herons, and, and osprey flying around. This is Research That Resonates, a podcast from Villanova University's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences that takes you inside the labs and classrooms to learn from our distinguished faculty and students. I'm your host, Chelsea Girard. In our first mini-series, we're talking about sustainability. Villanova researchers are looking into some of the most pertinent issues affecting our planet today including renewable energy, rising sea levels, and climate change. Dr. Weston and the students in his lab are interested in understanding how climate change and land use change affect these coastal wetlands, which is really important for us to understand because we depend on them for things like storm protection and filtering out pollutants. They provide a lot of important ecosystem services. So they um, are at at the border of where a lot of people live in the ocean. And so one of the really important things that they do is they uh, uh, act as a buffer for storm surges. Um, They also uh, filter out a lot of nutrients. So for instance, we fertilize our lawns, um, our our waste systems, septic systems, or or, um, municipal waste systems, um, end up putting nutrients in the water that comes down rivers and and then enters um, the coastal ocean and tidal marshes tend to take those nutrients out of the water as it floods the marshes. Um, so they act as kind of, um, they're sometimes called the kidneys of, of our uh, ecosystems because they filter out those pollutants. If coastal wetlands are the kidneys of our ecosystems, we certainly want them to be healthy. But increasingly, they are coping with two major risk factors. The first, rising sea levels. Because the salt marsh sits basically at current sea level, for that, salt marsh to exist, it has to stay at sea level. And, and one of the issues that we're facing right now is that sea levels are rising. So a coastal marsh needs to build material and, and accrete, um, sort of build up of material and, and build itself vertically in order to keep pace with sea level rise. And it does that through two major mechanisms. It builds up organic material, mostly because of the salt marsh plants. The other major mechanism is the trapping of sediment that comes in on floodwaters. Uh, the water flooding a marsh on high tide brings some of that suspended sediment up onto the marsh, and some of that gets trapped. The plants actually help trap that sediment. And it's the combination of both the sediment and the organic matter together that, that actually physically creates that marsh soil. And over time, that new soil generation allows a marsh to keep pace with sea level rise. So, so the, the, the issue now is that salt marshes are experiencing sea level rise, and and the concern is that sea level rise is accelerating, right? So the rate 
at which the sea level is rising is, is getting faster. And these salt marshes are going to have to then accrete material more quickly in order to keep up with sea level rise. But at the same time, and this is some of the work that our lab has done recently, is to show that the amount of sediment that's getting delivered to these marshes is going down. This, is, this has to do with the land use change in the watersheds that drain to these coastal zones. So the second risk factor is land use change, which essentially refers to how we, as a society, are managing and modifying the natural environment. Along the East Coast, that has historically meant clearing land for farming. So folks were cutting down trees and tilling the land, which in turn pushed a lot of sediment into the streams and rivers. That's changed in recent years. More recently though, what's happened is a lot of our farming has moved out to the west. Um, and so there has been reforestation along a lot of the east coast. Um, and there's been other very large scale land use changes. So we've increased the development. So we're building building houses and, and uh, developments in cities. And so you know, for, for these coastal marshes, the concern is that it's something of a double whammy, right? increasing sea level rise, decreasing sediment supply, and, and really the main question here is, are they gonna keep up? Um, and, and for a lot of these marshes, we actually think they probably will not be able to. Um, there will certainly be some marshes that keep pace of sea level rise, um, but, but a lot of the marsh that we see in the, along the, the East Coast right now is probably gonna disappear in the next 100 years. That's where Lloyd Willis comes in. He's an undergraduate student in Dr. Weston's lab and he's doing research to predict what these ecosystems will look like in the next hundred years. I'm Lloyd Willis, I'm a junior um, and biomedical science major. So from this last summer, I'm using a program called SLAM. Um, I can use this and show predictions of what the sea level rise in a specific area along the Delaware River, um, what the sea level rise will look like. So basically, also using GIS or geographic information systems, I can generate maps and visuals that show over a span of 100 years what sea level rise will look like. Lloyd is specifically looking at the wetlands along the Delaware River. To create these maps, he's using data collected from the field using surface elevation tables, or SETs for short, which measure how much soil has accumulated over a period of time. Lloyd had the opportunity to do some of this field work for the first time this past summer. It's a grueling work, but it's really interesting. I remember going to two, maybe three sites on the Delaware doing maybe I think we did a total of six SETs, I guess, per site. And just, again, so six sets of data over, long, over periods of time showing the, the levels of accretion and how much sediment or material is being built up. Yeah, we have, um, I guess, six sites on the, mm -hmm. along the Delaware River that go from <coughs> freshwater down to uh, saltwater um, where we have these SETs. That's Dr. Weston again. Some of them have been, not all of them, but some of them have been out there for um, about almost 10 years, I suppose. So we're getting, we're getting long-term data about you know, the, the response of these marshes to sea level rise and, and land use change. Another piece to Lloyd's research is understanding how saltwater intrusion affects these marshes. I asked him to explain what saltwater intrusion means and how it happens. When sea level is rising, sea level is bringing that salt water with it. So areas like along the Delaware River that are more inland, mm -hmm. they're fresh water. As sea level rises, that salt and salinity is going to go more inland and increasingly infect the usually tidal freshwater marshes. 
There are some unsurprising effects of saltwater intrusion, like the plant community isn't going to like it very much, but there will certainly be less obvious consequences to saltwater intruding into these marshes. Dr. Weston explains. If you put salt on a plant that's not used to salt, it's not gonna be very happy. Um, most of our work though is, is focused on understanding a little bit more nuanced responses because you have that, you have that change in plant community that then drives potentially changes on a lot of those ecosystem services that we care about. One of them specifically is this greenhouse gas. So some of this builds on you know uh, research that we've done over over the last decade in the Delaware River that sort of highlighted how we thought the carbon cycle would respond one way, and it and it actually responded in a, in a way that was entirely um, surprising to us. Uh, I mean, specifically, what happened was we and through a couple different experiments, we saw a lot higher methane release when we had saltwater intrusion than we would have thought. We actually thought methane would release would go down, so there'd be less methane generation with saltwater intrusion. And um, counterintuitively, we saw more methane release. And, th and the reason why we would care about methane is that it's a very potent greenhouse gas, so it's about 25 times as, as potent as carbon dioxide once it's in the atmosphere. Um, and so what Lloyd's work is, is building on some of those field experiments to then to then create a model to look at look at saltwater intrusion and and pr well, predict saltwater intrusion how the ecosystem responds and then and then build on top of that um, a model of, of the change in greenhouse gas balance that um, so we can say sort of you know for the whole Delaware River system if we have saltwater intrusion into these regions this is how much uh, methane we might see get released while Lloyd's research is looking at the future. One of Dr. Weston's graduate students is looking at what we can learn from the past. My name is Kristen Jeske. I'm a second year uh, graduate student in the Masters of Science in Environmental Science program here at Villanova. Kristen is researching heavy metal pollution. Some heavy metals are naturally present in the soil, she says, but we do see an increase in these metals with things like mining, sewage treatment plants, and other industrial activities. And so over time, um, with all of these activities, you're seeing an increase in some of these metals in our uh, watersheds, and these can have an important impact on people's health. I guess one of the ways that we could, you know, that people can really be affected by this is through infiltration into our groundwater. So if these um, metals are being able to seep down into our aquifers and we're, you know, pulling water out of them for drinking water purposes, you know, you're going to start to see a buildup of um, metals in people who are drinking this contaminated water. And another way is also um, through eating shellfish and fish that come from these systems. For her research project, Kristen gathered core samples from nine different coastal wetland systems between Maine all the way down to Georgia. She started with at least five samples from every site, and they were each 50 to 100 centimeters long. It's a lot of data, but she sectioned the samples and is working on the analysis. What's really neat about what Kristen's able to do is uh, we're doing dating of these, these soil core sections, so she also knows exactly the date at which the, the soil core section that she's measuring her metals on, she knows what date it corresponds to. So what she's going to be able to do is create a history of metal um, delivery to the coastal zone from these nine watersheds over the past about 100 years is how far back our, our dating is able to go. Kristen doesn't have comprehensive results on this yet, but she was able to share a bit about her initial findings with me. 
as I'm looking at my data, I can basically plot the depth versus the concentration of the metals that I'm seeing. And particularly for lead and cesium, I'm seeing a peak at around 35 centimeters, which would correlate to the 1960s. And another one of the things that I'm looking to do is kind of look at, you know, once I have all my results, I'm kind of going to try to look back at some of the policy decisions that have been made over the past uh, few decades. So specifically the Clean Water Act and also the Clean Air Act, um, and kind of to see if, you know, with the implementation of these policies, are we seeing a decline in our pollutions? Um, so, you know, the Clean Water Act was um, implemented in the 1970s. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if some of our policy um, ideas are actually working. Dr. Weston, Kristen, and Lloyd say their research is a collaborative effort and has implications across industries. That's something I've heard from every research team in doing this series on sustainability. Here's Lloyd again, talking him a little bit more about that experience. All the work that we do, even though it is, it is a lot and can be a lot, it's very important work and it does have implications that affect the world. So my experience in environmental science and my courses has kind of just related to just all the other classes that I'm taking. Like Lloyd was saying, um, environmental science really has an impact on so many different fields, including business, um, economics. I think it's really important for scientists to be able to work with the community and other people in other fields and really communicate what's going on and come up with solutions for our environment. Kristen's work is part of a project funded by the National Science Foundation, and Dr. Weston regularly includes his graduate and undergraduate students in prominent grant-funded research such as that one. As a part of this research, I, I continue to uh, engage with undergraduate and graduate students. Um, I find that by far the most rewarding part of, of what I do is, is having students conducting their own independent research projects within sort of the larger um, research program in my lab. That's the best part of what I do is to be able to um, spend a, a year or a couple years with, with students and then send them off on their way hopefully to do, to do great things. Thanks for listening to Research That Resonates. Check out all our episodes on sustainability as part of our first themed miniseries.